Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes. The rules have changed. listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me in the studio is my co-host cliff slotnick the z-man hey joe good afternoon and the cyber jockey zach slotnick hey joe good afternoon to you too welcome cj good to have you it looks like we're uh, ready for a rocking show today today's segments will include the microband trivia quiz, and we're going to try a little something different today. We've got a, a roundtable with uh, Ron Langley and a gang of guys from the real estate services team down in the North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina area. We've got Willie Murphy, Scott Whip, and Craig Spiceman, along with uh, Ron Langley. We'll get to that in just a moment, but uh, before we do, let's give our sponsors a little plug real quick. First, we'd like to thank Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dryease, D-R-I-E-A-Z.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. To contact the show, go to the TalkShoe website, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com. Our show ID is 1547. You'll have to get yourself a PIN number, and then you can either call or text message us here on the show. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let me turn it over to Cliff Slotnick, the Z-Man, for this week's microband trivia question.
Thanks, Joe. Congratulations go out to Chad Seams again of Iowa City, Iowa, for being the first person to successfully answer last week's two-part microband trivia question, which was to define the word ergonomics, which is the study of work and mechanics of the body, and tell us what the most common ergonomic injury was among veterinary professionals, and that is either back injuries or musculoskeletal disorders. Zach, the envelope, please. The microband trivia question for Friday, May 11th, 2007 is a musical question. We want you to name this tune. Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Cliff. And CJ, could you go over once again how people answer the question? Because we have changed the uh, procedures. There. Absolutely, Joe. In order to answer the question, go to forums.iaqradio.com, sign up for a free account on our forums, go to the trivia forum, and post a response to this week's episode. It Back to you, Joe. Thank you. It looks like people might have a chance to beat Chad this week. I don't see him online yet. Nope, neither do uh, I. All right, get those answers in and get your uh, get your prize. Uh, we've got a, a roundtable today. I'm going to start by introducing the leader of the gang out there, Ron, or down there, I should say, in Charlotte. Ron Langley is the CEO of Real Estate Services Team, REST, and he's an environmental and structural engineering consulting company. Ron's got a whole bunch of certifications here, CIE, CMR, CMI. I, I might get hit with the acronym police here. I hope not. Uh, but anyhow, uh, we've got also the certified phase one inspection. He's a North Carolina and South Carolina licensed inspector. I believe that would be a home inspector. We'll double check with Ron. And also North Carolina Department of Agriculture licensed inspector he's got over 14 years in field inspecting experience specializing in building forensics moisture intrusion and indoor air quality problems he's brought his team along with them we're going to have a roundtable discussion before we do i think cj's got a little intro for the team Welcome, Ron. How are you, sir? Oh, so we got the mute button on there. We'll fix that. Uh, hello, Ron. Hello, and uh, thank you for calling in. We uh, we were sitting around kind of discussing who would be the good, bad, and the ugly in the room, <laughs> and we decided to offer this vote on that. Well, I, I, we, I, we certainly tell you on the trivia song there, it's a good thing we got some smart engineers in here, because... No one has a clue what that is. <laughs> <laughs> we understand you have a few good men in the room, Ron. Uh, what, do you, what do you got for me, CJ? I said I want the truth. You can't! 
can't handle the truth. <laughs> After that introduction, I, I just figured out I was underpaid by that description there. But with me, I also have uh, Mr. Craig Spiesman. Uh Craig is the president of the Building Science Center, and uh, they are a restoration division. They also do a lot of uh, building science-type work where they do condition crawl spaces. Uh, they do drainage systems, a lot of mold remediation, cold cleaning, indoor air quality. Uh, work and want you to just say hello there, Craig. Hello. I'm also a CMR, CIE, and also a certified air duct cleaner by the National Air Duct Cleaners Association. Oh, there we go. All right. All right. They were hiding out there someplace. You, you've been uh, you've been pulled over first, Craig. All right. The acronym police. Let's CIE certified indoor environmentalist. CMR is now certified microbial remediator. And you you, right. you actually you you uh, didn't go with the NADCA acronym. You actually uh, you know you're pushing it. You caught yourself yeah, on that one. On the NADCA one. All right. What was the NADCA one? Are you an air systems cleaning specialist? Is that? Yes. Yes. Great. Great. Well, welcome, Craig. All right. Who's Thanks. next on your list, yeah. there, Ron? We have across from me, Mr. William Murphy. Mr. William Murphy is the president of Carolina Building Inspection Services. And I'll let you go, let him go through all his acronyms as well and tell you what he does for the company. <laughs> well, it's simple. I'm uh, licensed in both the North and South Carolina as a home inspector, and I'm uh, accredited uh, WDIR inspector in the state of North Carolina, which is your wood-destroying insect. Wood-destroying yeah. insects. Excellent. Thank you. Willie? Ron? And we also have with us, uh, uh, with great honorable mentioning, Mr. Uh, Scott Whip with NALCO, and I, I'm going to let him just take it straight from there. Tell you a little bit about NALCO. Please do. I, uh, I, uh, I work for a business unit of NALCO or a division called Environmental Hygiene Services. Uh, basically, uh, I help uh, Ron and Craig and Willie here with uh, a lot of their different types of projects and so forth on uh, documentation and different types of services on the reduction of public health risk. And the only acronym I've got is just a CIE, so I'm probably the dumb one of the bunch. <laughs> well, NALCO, is that an acronym as well? Uh, no, it's not. It's actually uh, it is a it is a company. It's a Fortune 500 company. Um, actually, it's one of the oldest companies in the United States. Uh, the division that I work for, Environmental Hygiene Services, we've been around um, probably for about 30 to 35 years. It is a global business unit. So not only do we do work here in North America, but we are stationed throughout the Pacific Rim, uh, Europe, Northern Europe, uh, South America, and also Australia and New Zealand. Excellent. Very good. Okay, Ron, let's get back to uh, Mr. Langley here, and let's start out with, uh, which, where should we start, Ron? What do you think? You want to start with uh, how you got started in this indoor environmental quality investigation and remediation business? Or why don't you give us a little background on real estate services team first? We, uh, we started out really from the building science and building investigation uh, era first back in 1993, uh, doing a lot of uh, building inspections, uh, commercial and residential, uh, primarily residential, and literally uh, in the late 90s, we started to see the trends in indoor air quality and environmental assessments becoming a very important part of what we uh, were able to perform. And so we brought in some some specialist in those areas, we also realized uh, it, was a, it was critical to be successful in the business to have people that had 
strong building science knowledge and moisture intrusion knowledge. So we found that those divisions could not actually work uh, as one single unit, so we made them separate corporations. And underneath uh, real estate services team, we actually had three different uh, incorporations. One is the EnviroTech Assessments, and they actually, all they do is environmental assessments. And we have the Building Science Center, which Craig is the president of, and they do restoration. Uh, and then we have Carolina Building Inspection Services, where they have the engineering staff that does structural and mechanical investigations. Well, I think what we'll do is just toss a question out there, and, you know, if, if Ron, if you want to handle it or you want to delegate it or more people want to comment on it, uh, that's fine with us. Uh, what is building forensics? Building forensics, and, and really in terminology, uh, is probably not a, a great use of, of terminology. We, we define it as uh, identifying a specific problem. Uh, it's, and unlike an investigation uh, um, in, an, in the areas of a home inspection or a commercial inspection where we're going in specifically to, to list items of deficiencies, forensics, we look at that more as there is a known problem but not a known cause. So that's when our team goes in with a lots of specialized tools and and really the best tool that they carry in their pocket is the knowledge that they gain over years and years of experience. But they go into these buildings and structures with everything from infrared cameras to uh, moisture intrusion meters to indoor air quality meters to determine what's going on inside that structure so they can better prepare their client for how do, how do we solve this problem. You know, on a typical residential inspection, is this... Uh, does one person go out solo, or do you send a team of two or three people and they branch out and look for different things, or it depends? Uh, it, it really does depend. It depends on um, age of the structure, size of the structure. Um, and, and most typical home inspections, you're sending out one person. Um, but that, you know, that's a you know, call-by-call situation. Okay. Is that Willie? Yes. Okay. I, I just want to make sure that we're we're clear with uh, everybody out there who's speaking. So Willie Murphy, um, it's a case by case situation. You do a lot right. with uh, wood destroying fungus and, and insects, Willie. What's the most uh, prevalent problems you're finding there in the North Carolina, South Carolina area? Well, North and South Carolina has a, a very large problem with ter subterranean termites, eastern subterranean termites. Um, that's the number one cause of damage around here. Um, you also have, uh, there's other insects, powder post beetles, old house boars, but the termites are the, the number one issue. Um, fungal related issues, uh, we leave that up to, to Ron and his, his group. Um, you know, we do see that, but as a home inspector, um, you know, we don't get too involved in as, uh, you know, the, the fungal issues. From the wood destruction side of that, it's, we typically look at the brown rod and white rod, uh, and that we really take that out of the allergenic equation and we're looking specifically at uh, cellulose destruction. And if you look at a, a let's say a 2 by 10 that uh, is already at 30% moisture, then you're less than 70% of its uh, originally designed strength at that point. Now combine that with brown rod that is ripped out the cell structure, uh, now there's no way that 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 material can handle what the specified load was. 
and that's what we're there to determine. We use our structural engineers in combination with uh, environmentalists to determine, you know, how is it affecting the structure and how is it affecting the people who might be inhabiting the house. You know, with families now, one in five obviously have allergenic problems. It's pretty easy to determine that most of the families that are going to move in a house have someone that either has allergies or on specific aller uh, allergy medications. And with this, uh, with the wood destroying fungus, is this a common problem in your area because of the type of construction? I understand you've got quite a few uh, dirt crawl spaces in the area. Well, it is in twofold. And one is the changes in the building industry. Uh, literally during the years of the oil embargo where gas prices went up almost to the price of what they are today. That's kind of a funny thing when you think about it. <laughs> really? um, yeah, we started building houses much tighter. Uh, so we started enclosing that envelope and uh, actually created some building and structural problems by doing so. When we put vapor barriers on the outside wall, we decided we still like to use the vinyl wallpaper on the inside wall. We created microclimates inside the wall cavities. This was a great breeding ground for uh, mold to occur because of the moisture. And in our area, we are in a heating climate zone instead of uh, uh, a cooling climate zone in, in, in relationship to how much of the year it's hot versus cold. So what we see typically in the summertime here is 85 to 95 degrees at 60 to 80 percent relative humidity. You put those two conditions together where it meets uh, inside of a house that is at 72 degrees, even at 30 and 40 percent relative humidity being controlled by the HVAC system, there's still large potentials for the psychometrics to cause dew point to occur in that wall cavity or in where we find it most predominantly in the crawl space. You know, in your in the many homes that you look at, you probably, you know, certainly you look at new homes, you look at older homes. Let me ask you a question. A home that might be 50, 60 years old that's still in that environment, are you finding the same problems in these older homes that you're finding in the new ones? Or Well, and again, that goes back to several things that's occurred in, in the building construction. And one is that we, we really do not have access to the 30-year yellow pine anymore. We use the southern white pine uh, predominantly for construction. And if you look at the cell structure of that wood under a microscope, it's about half as dense, which makes sense. It's grown half as many years. So if you go to Lowe's or Home Depot and take your thumbnail, you can pretty much just indent a uh, two-before today, whereas a yellow pine, when I grew up as a young kid, I broke my knuckles on it in uh, martial arts. Mm -hmm. Now they're easy to snap. So when you see a guy breaking six boards with his hand, he's not breaking much. Right. But that also means that it's very susceptible to moisture in the wood. And that that creates a situation where it's easy for mold to grow, especially in a crawl space that's, that's damp and wet. Now, do you find that problem in the older homes as well or just in the newer homes? We find it predominantly in the newer homes, but, but as I said, there's two reasons that that occurs. One is the type of wood we use today. The second thing that we find in all new construction is we love to have those double garages with a, a slab 
that gives me no ventilation on one whole side of the structure because I can't have ventilation to the crawl space where I have carbon monoxide just being pumped out by a vehicle. And then we love to have a front fit front and back filled porch, uh, which also cuts off a lot of the ventilation. And now builders traditionally will build the crawl space area 12 to 2 feet deep uh, compared to the outside grade. Whereas in the older homes, you had choice lots you could build on literally the crown of the landscaping, which gave you wonderful drainage around the house and, and made ventilation possible. The way we construct houses today with the HVAC systems and plenums running through the crawl space, there's no way to get proper cross-sectional ventilation. And even if we could get that type of ventilation with the type of wood and amount of moisture that we pump through a house, you're not going to stop mold growth from occurring without conditioning it. Okay, so in the older homes, let, I, this is interesting to me now, um, in the older homes, oftentimes I'm getting the impression you're able to leave them be, allow the ventilation, it seems to work well, um, but with the newer homes, oftentimes you're having to recommend they go to a conditioned crawl space? That's correct. And I have a question. We've had people on about, you know, discussing conditioned crawl spaces, um, and uh, we've had some of the basement systems folks on. But I understand you guys, and maybe we could uh, go to uh, Craig on this one, who actually, I believe, puts a lot of these systems in. And um, I understand you do things a little bit differently, that you um, are, are a little different from just, you know, putting a swimming pool underneath the home and uh, maybe throwing a dehumidifier in there. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the uh, building science issues on the, uh, with respect to conditioned crawl spaces, Craig? Yeah, what we do with a conditioned crawl space that's different is we don't lay the poly directly on the wall. What we do is when we insulate a foundation wall, we use a radiant-type barrier, and we create an air gap between the wall and the poly so that you don't have the moisture wicking up the wall to the bandsill. It has a chance to evaporate before it gets there, so it won't uh, get all the way up to the structure. Uh, the other thing that we do is that we condition the crawl using air from the house to positively pressurize the crawl space to combat some of the pressurization issues from outside with the different fronts that come through. We don't want that moisture having a chance to get through into the crawl space because you, in North Carolina, well, you have to leave a four to five inch inspection gap for termites. You have a part of the block wall that air has an opportunity and moisture to pass through and you have to leave it that way. So what we want to try to do is positively pressurize the crawl space using conditioned air so that we can prevent as much of that air leakage and moisture from coming into the house as possible. And we've designed a, a system using our engineers and the engineers of the manufacturers to come up with a very unique design uh, for how we accomplish that. We looked at the house yesterday, Joe. The, the builder's concern was, I got a conditioned crawl space, but all my outside block has efflorescence all over it. And so I took him inside the crawl space and I said, here, put your hand inside here and feel how saturated that block is. 
And so he asked me, well, why does this occur? I said, well, you have waterproofing on the exterior. You have a 15 mil reinforced non-permeable barrier on the inside. For lack of a better term, we call this a swimming pool. And the block is a wonderful device through capillary action to take that water up as high as it physically will go. And that's typically to the band sill. And we know what all band sills are. They are trees, and trees are water transfer devices. Got a question for, in terms of uh, positively pressurizing uh, this crawl space, do you do anything in order to clean it before you let that air mix with air in the home? Do you have any concerns about, you know, blowing up allergens, blowing up mold spores from cracks and crevices and so on and so forth into the home? Yeah, actually we do. Um, a lot of the construction that we're doing now is new construction, so there are no contaminants in the crawl space. It's all brand new wood, and a lot of the builders that we build for use blue wood that's already been treated, so it comes to us with no contamination on it. In existing homes, we will recommend removing all the insulation, HEPA vacuuming, and sanding all the wood, treating it with an antimicrobial, and then sealing it prior to us installing the conditioned crawl so that we know all of the exposed surfaces in the crawl space are free of any microbial contamination. Now, do you and, get... And it, Go ahead. Keep in mind that uh, that is not a two-way uh, airflow system. It is a either a continuous duty airflow system directly to the crawl space, or it is a baffled system that is controlled through the HVAC system. There, there is no return that's ever put in the crawl space. Okay, so essentially there's going to be some exterior venting then to a, you're introducing positive pressure in, and there's going to be some sort of venting mechanism uh, within that crawl space to vent to the outside. Well, it's pretty easy. The venting mechanism is normally called 250 linear feet of band fill that, that has about an eighth to a quarter an inch gap all the way around as gotcha. it is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. I wish though. I could say that we seal them that well. There's, there's no way to possibly do that. Okay. Now, do you get clients, I'm sure they say, hey, well, this is going to cost me more money to cool or heat my home now. How do you, uh, you, know, how do you handle that issue when it comes up? Well, actually, it doesn't because uh, the building science side of that is that because these crawl spaces are below ground to begin with, we're working with ground thermodynamics. That means that that crawl space naturally, naturally is going to stay somewhere between 58 degrees and about 74 degrees all year round. So if I'm heating it or cooling it, that, that temperature differential is so minute. Now also what occurs is if I keep that crawl space at an equal balance to the interior of the home, I actually pick up an increased energy efficiency somewhere between 13 and 18 percent, or at least that's what advanced energy uh, and their energy studies have, have presented. All right. I, let me see. I, I've, I've got some callers on the line here. Let's see. Is that Elisa? Let me check it out here. Elisa, is that you? I see Aliris. Hello. Oh, she must not be on the line there. Uh, I just wanted to check and see if we had a call-in question. But before we move on to another subject, 
Um, well, I had a couple on go the ahead. subject I wanted go to ahead. get in before they were done. Uh, I can throw this out for multiple answers. What was the most unusual investigation outcome you ever had to explain to an owner? Well, I probably the most unusual one, and and we kind of use it as a as a funny story around here. I was I was called by a, a he, he was they're actually named the top builder in the area, and he, he said, Ron, he said I got a I got a major issue with a basement. The whole ceiling of the basement is covered with mold. The house is 11 months old. This is a very expensive home. The client is extremely upset worried about the safety of their kids and family and, and that they have a house that has a major defect. He said, I've had my whole crew out there to look at it, and we cannot figure out what's going on. Could you come out there and tell us where the moisture problem is? I went out to the structure. I looked at the ceiling, and he was absolutely correct. There were dark uh, splotches all over the ceiling from end to end, and uh, I started my investigation of the structure itself. This was a unique design in that they had a double wall and wall construction all the way around the basement so that there was a foundation, exterior foundation wall, and a full interior foundation wall where you had a utility cavity that was literally three foot wide that separated the outside to the inside. And it was so dry that I was choking from the dust. So I knew that it was not an exterior water problem. So I got up on my ladder to go to the ceiling to take some measurements, and that's when I started looking at it carefully. And I said, either this is a species of mold I have not run across yet, or it's an explosion. And what it looked like to me was a gunpowder explosion, thousands of them. And as I looked at it closer, the repetition of the patterns was confirming what I was looking at. So I started doing what every good investigator would do, is I started moving furniture in the house, and I found it. It was, uh, I don't know if any of you ever heard of the snapping pops. Yeah. <laughs> the little popping rocks. Right. And evidently her son had taken thousands of them with some friends of his and thrown them against the ceiling of the house. And so when I called the builder and I told him, I said, your problem is uh, black powder explosions on the ceiling. He said, Ron, if you can prove that to me chemically, you will be the only company we'll ever use for engineering and design. <laughs> and we've had that contract now for two years. Yeah, I don't think it would that be. That was probably the funniest one. Yeah, I think I could <laughs> chemically prove that pretty easily myself. <laughs> yeah. uh, I one of the ones that, from a diagnostic standpoint that I, that I was the happiest with was I got a call from a physician on a family, uh, husband and wife, the, the wife was a nurse, husband was an engineer, had three kids that ranged from six, eight, 13 years old. And for literally a year, the husband and wife, neither one could work, both of them had chronic fatigue. The kids were failing out of school. Uh, in fact, I knew the school they were going to and had talked to the principal and the principal said they, these kids just cannot, their attention span is not enough to stay in school. Uh, we're going to have to do something with them. And so they asked me to go out and look at their house because the physician was convinced that these kids were being poisoned somehow, and so was the parents. So I went out and looked at the house, 
And uh, this is where it, the, the really the structural inspection background helped a whole lot. I was able to notice that one of the supply ducts had a greater degree of bend than what I felt like was natural. And when I investigated it, it turned out that it had about four gallons of sewage water in it. And it came off of the hall bathroom. Eighteen months earlier, their daughter had gone to the bathroom, stopped up the toilet, it overflowed in the floor, and the vent was right next to the toilet. They never realized that all that sewage had gone into that duct, and that was what was blowing throughout the house, causing bacterial infections. We replaced the duct, cleaned the system, and within 30 days, they started to get better, and within two months, both husband and wife both were back to work, and the kids were doing great in school. Do you encounter radon in your part of the country? What you take on, Willie? Well, in, in this part of the country, um, uh, rental levels aren't that prevalent. Um, of course, the higher we get, the closer we get to the mountain ranges in North Carolina, um, your percentages goes up. But uh, in our area, it's, it's not really a too big of a concern. Yeah, radon is an issue of a rock formation. How to rock? Well, you know, obviously, it's the breakdown of uranium. And so what happens is when you look at the mountain chain, the uh, granite chain that runs literally from Atlanta to Maine, uh, which we call the uh, Great Smoky Mountains here, uh, that's where the levels are very elevated. I understand, you know, even when you get up to Pittsburgh area, you can have pockets up there that can be pretty high. The mountain area runs about 27%. Uh, we run less than around 5 to 8% here in the Charlotte Piedmont area. And then as you get down to the coast of Sandy Soils, uh, it dropped down below 1% or 2%. Uh, and we, it, it, is a, it is something we have to be very concerned about. Uh, we have had several deaths in Charlotte uh, that are related to radon. So for the inexpensive testing radon, uh, while the home inspection is being done, it's well worth the money. Will your recommended procedure that you use for crawl spaces, that design, will that handle radon because you're positively pressurizing the area? Well, it handles it actually in two ways because it is a totally sealed membrane, so therefore you, you do not have the air flow from the crawl space directly into the subflooring. That's one of the issues, and, and absolutely with positively pressuring uh, the underneath, it does that. Ron, I have a question. You, you've got an unusual setup, and there are um, concerns within the industry about groups that do both investigation and remediation, and, and I know you've separated the companies, but how do you handle the conflict of interest question if and when it comes up? And that's, a, that's an excellent question, and it's how we looked at that very specifically is we look at every project, and if and we do it by how that project comes into uh, our company. But if we are the investigate, if we're doing the investigation and we take project management, let's say we take total project management, then we will always, always bring in a outside firm uh, to do verification and clearance testing. It, it's the only way that you can have proper separatization, even though we have three different corporations here, uh, it is my goal that no one ever looks at us and says, 
ethically they're doing the wrong thing. We want to make sure that that client is protected in every manner that he can be protected. Uh, even through the, we separate the environmental from the home inspection. And we do that for multiple reasons. And the main reason we do that separation is a home inspector has a very tough job to inspect a home and find all the structural and mechanical and electrical, all those issues. The last thing I want the home inspector to try to do is, is to be a forensic specialist on environmental. It is, uh, it is very complex, it is very time consuming, and they have a specific lot of time to go out there and do a home inspection. So anytime it gets into the environmental side, we try to uh, tell our inspectors, you know, you defer that, uh, let the specialists come in for moisture intrusion, for radon, for mold, let them come in and do that evaluation Instead of what we've seen in the industry that really concerns me, there's a lot of inspection companies out there, they, they go through a course, they get a CIE, they get a CMR, and they'll go out and add sampling because for them that's where the money is. Go take five or six samples and send the lab result to the client. Well, I can't tell you how many calls I get every week of real estate agents and clients that go, such and such home inspection just sent me lab results and I have no idea what this means. Does it mean it's good? Does it mean it's bad? Does it mean I have a problem? And this is, this is where we tell our home inspectors, concentrate on what you do best and let the other teams come in and identify specific problems. I don't want my home inspectors doing structural engineering. We have certified structural engineers. They do structural engineering. I, I don't want my home inspectors doing mold remediation. We have a, a remediation team, and they are specifically trained and certified to do that type of work. We keep that separation by making sure that through each division, there is separate verification for everything we do. You know, your part of the country is in the path of inclement weather pretty often, and I'm wondering whether these inclement weather patterns, hurricanes, high wind, high rain events, cause any unusual problems in, in buildings that you inspect, you know, what they might be and where they would be located. Well, no, I mean, uh, just recently in Charlotte, um, they upgraded our, our zone to what they consider a high wind zone area because of uh, Hurricane Hugo that came through a few years back. Um, but other than a few structural changes, um, no, I mean, construction here is a little different than on the coast. Um, you, you have to add high wind straps to your frame and such. But We do find some issues where uh, we, we just got through doing a large project down in Charleston, South Carolina, where their requirements there were solid uh, foundation, no piers. So when you go up underneath them, you, you feel like you're in a puzzle somewhere uh, or a labyrinth or something because you're trying to figure out how to crawl through a crawl space. That brings forth a lot of new challenges on there is no possible way to do ventilation in those crawl spaces. It doesn't matter if the whole outside foundation wall is, is nothing but venting. There's so many internal foundation walls. There's no way to stop moisture problems in those without conditioning those structures. You know, what about wind-driven rain? 
Uh, do you find issues where wind-driven rain has forced its way in, you know, through flashing, uh, window sills, roofing areas, et cetera? Doors. Doors. But I'll tell you an example that I had recently with one of the uh, Channel 9 newscasters. Uh, the builder had he's been in his house now for about three years. The builder had had a constant leak for three years on the roof uh, at the chimney. They had replaced all the flashing on the chimney. They had replaced the shingles around the chimney, uh, and they had remortared and bricked the chimney and still had a leak. And what we did was uh, something that was very simple, and I, and I tell people who do investigative work, try to think, don't think complex. Don't grab your infrared camera first. If you're looking for water, the best way to, to do that is to use water to find it. And so what we did is I actually took a team, we took water hoses, and we started at a specific level and started pouring water and then measuring moisture as it increased until we found that there was an area of sheathing that had been properly, improperly lapped near the uh, chimney, and therefore the flashing was, was flipping up, and that was causing the water to come inside the structure. If buildings today, because of the roof designs, you know, we, we don't build them like we used to where they're 1,200 square feet and you got one pitch front and back. Uh, now there's so many different roof angles and so many different pitches. You know, it, it's very common for us to find a 10, 12-pitch roof now. Uh, it is very easy for the flashing details to, to not be appropriate or even where builders really don't put the thought in, if I got a 10, 12-pitch roof that's on an angle to hit another roof, that the water flow is going to be too much to be handled by a standard gutter. Uh, we find those types of issues all the time. Let's take a, a quick break here. I just want to make a few announcements. First, uh, I'd like to let our listeners know that we did our first uh, on-the-road renewal credit course. Actually, I, I did it yesterday. And uh, what I've been doing is promoting going out on the road and getting uh, – the uh, radio shows and reviewing the radio shows and the quizzes with uh, groups of people and it went really well yesterday so we're available to do those types of courses on the road for folks if you need renewal credits for the um, American Indoor Air Quality Council's uh, renewal credit program for your certified indoor environmentalist, certified indoor environmental consultant, whatever uh, certifications you have. Secondly, we're planning a few of these renewal credit courses up at the Indian Lake Resort and Lodge in Somerset, Pennsylvania here this summer, which is a, a nice little place if you like to get away, do a little golfing, a little swimming, maybe go out on a kayak or something like that. Our first one is scheduled for June 21st. And of course, all of our shows are available for renewal credits if you want to download those and then email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S at IAQ Training. We will send you the quiz for the show. You can uh, then fill out the quiz, send us back uh, the answers with your signature that you listen to the show, and get yourself a renewal credit. Some people get uh, up against the wall on occasion, need some quick credits before their uh, certification runs out. We've got 35 shows up now, so you can get as many credits as you need as quick as you need. All right, before uh, we move on here, Let's. Uh, what I'd like to do is check real quick with any of our uh, listeners. I, I see a couple. Darren, let's ask Darren. Darren, did you have any questions out there? Hello, Darren. 
Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you, sir? <laughs> All things considered, a lot better. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Have you had a rough week? <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, no, I've had a rough couple of months. <laughs> oh, yeah. We haven't seen you in a while. Any questions for the, the gang today? No, you know, I kind of came in a little bit late, and I uh, was just you know, kind of uh, listening in and, um, you know, looking at uh, what you had to say. I, I was kind of curious, um, you know, whether or not you come across buildings that, um, you know, have had hurricane issues and how you deal with um, those, whether or not they're properly remediated or whether or not you can determine whether or not um, um, it was associated or, you know, if it had black water or any other kinds of things that because you're kind of in a hurricane-prone area and looking at the guidelines as far as the Category 3 now and the new S-500 is how you address those kinds of problems. All right. Let's see, Ron, who's best to uh, handle that question from your group? Well, and that's probably, uh, and I'll handle that one, it is probably one of the most difficult questions uh, that we have to answer ourselves because, as you know, in that process, what happens so often is you may be the second, third, fourth, or tenth person that's come in there and done some type of work on that structure, and you have no idea what the qualifications are or were of the people that were before you uh, you know, it brings up a lot of concerns for us, safety concerns for our own crew, and that's a, my, my first and primary goal when we send any of our people out to any site. It doesn't matter if it's storm damage or, or I'm sending them out to a, a general investigation is the safety of my crew. Um, the, the electrical wires hanging down in crawl spaces, uh, the, the having where your feet are standing in water, uh, very much like I said, if you're in, if you do any type of industrial or commercial facility, uh, it's very unlikely that you're going to get a nice dossier of all the chemicals that are used in that facility, uh, so that you know how to protect your team. So when we when we look at those types of sites, you know, one we send them in with the uh, the highest protection form that we can put them under uh, for PPE. Um, but we also, when we're doing the remediation, we assume that nothing has been done. We assume that we're starting from scratch and doing whatever it takes to get the job done properly. And we assume that we have to have uh, proper containment. We, we assume that there's got to be cleanup. Uh, we do not assume that somebody else is handling those pieces and parts. And if they are, then we want a signed contract that says they are, and they're taking all the legal responsibility thereof. Very good. Uh, and Cliff, did you have one? No, actually, I was thinking of moving into another subject. Actually, I wanted to talk about, you know, waterborne pathogens, and I just want to throw out the question: What is Legionella? And we've got the Legionella wow. man here. Yep. Scott uh, basically, Legionella is basically a waterborne pathogen. They consider it a higher life form. What's really interesting about it, though, is that, you know, when a lot of people hear about it, they read about it, they, they hear it in casual conversation or in a news report or something, they don't realize that the bacteria itself is unable to survive by itself. It actually needs a host cell in order to survive and the microbial diversity that it'll find in the what we call the inoculation uh, points. And usually that host cell is, a, is what we call a higher life form, like a protozoa, and that the Legionella bacteria actually gets consumed 
by that protozoa and then starts to grow within it. And because it's a higher life form cell, it's only capable of living in what we call biofilms or, or very highly densely microbial type of uh, environments. Um, there's actually numerous types of species of Legionella. They actually break them down into what we call serogroups. Right now, it, it's usually identified that there's three current serogroups. Serogroup 1, serogroup 2 through 14, and then serogroup 15 through I believe it's 38 or 39. And even though all those serogroups are Legionella, the serogroup that everybody usually, uh, you know, basically associates with the bad disease or the bad bug or the things that you would hear on a news report is only in serogroup 1. Usually about 90% of all the uh, types of uh, outbreaks or documented Legionella um, disease that's recorded is in serogroup 1. How long does it take to differentiate between these groups? That's a great question. Um, until recently, it took about two weeks. There are literally probably hundreds of, of laboratories and, and people out there that can take a water sample um, just to see if it, is, uh, if it does have Legionella. And what you would normally get is you would get a report that would either give you a positive or a negative, and they wouldn't tell you anything differently. Um, there, are, there are a few companies out there that can actually take the sample now um, and give you a report of the level of Legionella in all three serogroups. Now, people ask us, they say, well, why is that important? If I'm really only concerned about, you know, the, quote, bad bug in serogroup one, what would it mean to me to know what's in serogroup two or in serogroup three? Well, if you think about it, if you're, if you're looking at it from a, what we call a hygiene perspective, you want to see if the environment is conducive to actually grow the bacteria. So if you were only using a laboratory that gave you a positive or negative, you could get a negative, but that doesn't mean that the conditions aren't right to grow. That's why if you're able to use a laboratory that can give you all three serogroup detection limits, you might get a negative in serogroup one, which is good, but it's telling you that your conditions are conducive to grow the bad bug and that you should take necessary actions to eliminate that. Now, it normally would take two weeks. You would take the sample, you'd send it off, they'd go ahead and culture it, and they'd give you a, uh, a report, again, in about uh, probably 12 to 14 days. But there are methods out there that you can actually get a positive or a negative on serogroup one in as little as 25 minutes. There is new technology out there that is commercially available. Okay, let's let me just remind our listeners we're we're talking to Scott Whip now of the uh, Ron's group down there, the real estate services team. He's the NALCO National Sales Coordinator for Industrial Hygienic Health Risk Reduction Division. There's a mouthful, huh, Scott? Now, <laughs> no, I, I, I spelled it all out there, so I'm not in trouble on that one. And uh, Scott's also got his certified indoor environmentalist. He's 17 years with um, with NALCO, I guess it would be, in the area of uh, water and air quality. My, my question would be, where do you find most often, what, what are the breeding grounds for Legionella? Great question. Um, you know, a lot of people associate Legionella with just being in the water, but it's also in the soil. It's, it's very natural within the environment. 
and you'd be really amazed on how many systems actually have it. In fact, if you look at a lot of the protocols out there, like the Cooling Tower Institute, CTI, they'll go as high as saying 70 to 80 percent of the systems within a downtown business district probably have Legionella within their systems. Now, the thing about it is what a lot of people don't realize is, and I use it an analogy when you're in, you know, when you're in educational seminars. If you had a cup of water in front of you and you had it inoculated with Legionella, and me and Ron and Craig and Willie are here sitting here drinking it, we're not going to get Legionella even though we're drinking it. The only way that you can actually get infected with Legionella is by breathing it. It is an airborne transmitted disease that affects the lungs. So you can drink it all day, but until you actually inhale or get that bacteria into your lung system and breathe it, it's not going to affect you or make you sick. You know, it's a known problem. I'm sorry. It's a known problem in commercial and institutional buildings. Is Legionella also found in homes? It sure can, because you've got to look at the inoculation sources. And I'll give you a really good idea here. In Charlotte, one of our biggest, uh, I guess you'd call water reservoirs, would be Lake Norman. And where you have to look at where do residential homes or, or housing developments or what we would consider light commercial type of building office complexes, where do they get their water at? They still come from city water systems. And the thing is, is that those city water systems are giving you water. And just because the city might be bacterial free doesn't mean as it travels down the pipe and it finally gets to your place of residence or your place of business that those systems may not have bacteria because of certain situations. And I'll give you an idea when we, when we speak with clients or, or we're we're, we're discussing these concepts with people, we have what we call the four pillars of risk within water hygiene. And they are keep hot water hot, keep cold water cold, keep water moving, and minimize, reduce, or if possible, eliminate aerosolization. And I'll kind of I'll expand on each one briefly. Keeping hot water hot. Basically, if you look at the documentation from places like OSHA or CDC or ASHRAE, you can go and hit the siren button if you want on me for the acronym. <laughs> but uh, they will say that if you can keep the water above 140 degrees, that you're going to kill the bacteria. But problem is, especially here in North Carolina, in light resident or you know in residential and also in, in light uh, commercial, your discharge limits are usually about 114 degrees. And from 114 to 125, it's a very, very good cultural um, breeding ground for the bacteria. They really like that temperature. But if you can keep it hot, keep it hot. Keep cold water cold. Less than 68 degrees Fahrenheit, they're dormant. Doesn't kill them, but they keep them dormant. Keep water moving. One of the biggest issues with waterborne pathogens is water stagnation. And a great analogy is if you're driving in the morning past a golf course and you go past a, a hole that has a pond next to it early in the morning or in the afternoon, you ever notice that green scum layer that's sitting on the top of the pond? That's a biofilm. That is the perfect breeding ground for waterborne pathogens. 
And the last thing, I used the analogy of drinking water uh, with all of us here, if it had Legionella in it, that it wouldn't do anything to us. We actually have to aerosolize the water so that we can breathe it in. So a lot of people associate Legionnaire's disease with cooling towers, air handler units, um, fountains, water features, things of that nature. But shower heads, faucets, bathtub uh, fixtures, things like that, spas, whirlpools, jacuzzis, things like that are, are huge potential areas where you can have this disease. In fact, one of the uh, one of the well-documented Legionella outbreaks actually happened in a, uh, in a store that had a jacuzzi that was actually being used as a model. And they found out that in the area, there were numerous people that were con um, con contracting Legionella, or excuse me, Legionnaire's disease. When they went ahead and finally did some of the investigation, it came down to that they found out that the display model of the jacuzzi in this particular store wasn't treated and therefore it had been in operation for probably about two months and it formed its own biofilm. We have a question. But, from, uh, I'm sorry, we have a question. Yeah. Uh, I, I just want to, sorry to interrupt you. We have a question from one, no, of no our, from one of our listeners. Even though yeah. drinking is not a way to be affected, do water home filter systems have the ability to filter out this bacteria? That's a great question. Uh, the it depends on what they're yeah, yeah, Ron and I are sitting here, and we're kind of giving the yes and no. We're not being wishy-washy, but it depends on exactly what the filter's being used for. It also depends on what part of the system that they're filtering it. Yeah, it, it, in other words, if, if, if they were on a Mecklenburg County chlorinated system, yeah, that would probably be or fine if that's a well water system without some type of... Uh, chemical additive or UV additive, then uh, probably not. Probably not. One thing, to, one thing, one of the reasons that we have seen that you don't get a lot of reports residential, and I'll tell you why, it's the third pillar of risk, keep water moving. Uh, one of the good habits, and being a hygiene person now that I, I've kind of changed my ways, is every time I go to a hotel room, first thing I do is when I go into the hotel room, I'll, I'll turn on the faucet and I'll turn on the shower and let it go for five or ten minutes. And the reason for that is, is as you get that water flowing, you're physically making the water to get pulled through the domestic water pipes. So if you were to have any type of microbial little buildup or, or microbial bacteria in the shower head or in the faucet head, you're flushing the system out. Now the thing is, is that if you look at your house, how often does your kitchen sink stay stagnant? probably you use it every day. You probably use it 10 to 20, 40, 50 times a day. I would imagine most of your listeners probably at least take one shower or one bath a day or at least every other day. So, so they have very, very, <laughs> yeah, and you hope, we hope, we hope. Except the um, ones in you know, Canada. Ron Craig, you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but my point being is, is that most of those water features are being used on a consistent basis. They're not sitting there for a week or two or a month time period not being used, increasing the chance of bacterial proliferation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That, that's why from a residential side, you may not see it as much, but that doesn't mean that there's the chance for it to be there. I've got a two-part question. I guess the first part is what are the best practices for preventing Legionella, if there's anything other than the four pillars that, that you um, wanted to add to? 
And if not, how is it remediated? If there's Legionella in a in a building water system, how is what's the process for remediating it? Great question. The, the, the answer to the first question on, on, you know, what do you do besides keeping water um, flowing, there are a lot of what we consider secondary disinfection practices in the industry. Um, one is UV light that, that Ron mentioned. One is chlorine dioxide. One is ozone. Um, one is actually, believe it or not, there are facilities out there that, that Part of their PM practices, they'll call them boilouts or cookouts. They will actually try to isolate their systems and bring the water temperature up above 140 or 160 degrees for a certain period of time to basically, you know, for lack of a better term, boil off the bacteria. Um, high levels of chlorine, which we would consider hypochlorination, is also a practice that is still used in some, uh, in some facilities. There's numerous types of secondary disinfection chemistries out there that, that people use. Um, and uh, the second part of the question, if you wouldn't mind, you remind me. How, oh, I'm sorry. How do you get rid of it if you have it? Excuse me. Um, there are protocols within ASHRAE, CTI, CDC, a lot of the um, professional organizations that will give you the proper method. Oh. <laughs> you caught me off guard. They'll give you the, uh, give you the protocol. I just had to pay Ron a dollar for that. Too. <laughs> they, uh, and you have to tell us what ASHRAE is. Got to keep my team sharp. Yeah, I, I got I to buy the first round now. But uh, there's, there's a lot of professional protocols that will tell you based on the type of system. For an example, if it's a cooling tower, how you go in there, you isolate the system, you disinfect it, you clean it, you re-disinfect it, then you recharge the system. If it's an air handler unit, it would be very similar. If it's a domestic water system, there are ways to go in there in a short period of time to disinfect the system, bring fresh water in, and clean it. And the, the people that we see are the clients that we actually deal with that, that get people like Ron and Craig involved in those types of remediation services. These are things that can be done on a very short time period, within 24 to 72 hours to bring them back online based on the protocols. So it's not something that's so unique that it isn't done. Um, what we recommend or, or what we try to preach, again, based off the best practices, is that if people think that they have a concern or an issue, is that they try to instill the best practices of monitoring, assessing what they would call their most prevalent water pieces, using of equipment to see if they do have any microbial deficiencies or if they have an environment that could be conducive to actually growing it. And by using those types of best practices, just put themselves on a normal PM that can try to prevent it. And the thing is, is that you can put the best protocols in place. This is something that I, that I think is kind of difficult for people to understand. You can put the best protocols in place, and you can still get it. We have seen light commercial industries that do secondary disinfection, that do, you know, that do ongoing cleanings and disinfections, that do assessment, and they still contract the disease. I'll give you a really interesting little uh, case study. People say, well, how does that happen? Isn't it in the water? Well, well, it's true, but what people also need to understand is that Legionella is also transported by the air. It's actually an airborne disease that grows in the water. And the industry is out there now. 
that for very little money, you can actually get DNA testing done on Legionella. So when you identify inoculation sources, you can actually get down to the exact piece of equipment where the Legionella could be coming from. The reason I bring that up is if you look at the OSHA guidelines and stuff, they'll tell you how far that these little buggers can travel. We had, a, we had an issue in North Carolina that was, uh, that was actually in the papers where they found out that one light residential business was actually inoculated from another business about three miles down the road. So my point being is you can do all the best protocol in place, but that doesn't guarantee you that you'll be 100% risk-free. Also, you've got to keep in mind that that's a susceptibility by population as well. You know, when, when Legionella first came out and, and they, they talked about, you know, where the actual name comes from, these were elderly people. Uh, they had immunocompromised systems. Um, it is very prevalent with uh, people that have liver damage uh, or other pulmonary uh, problems, smoking, that type of thing. It is the top three cause of, of uh, sporadic community uh, acquired pneumonia. So if you look at the same profile of the types of people that uh, struggle with pneumonia, that is going to people, that's a susceptible population. So you have to take that into account as well. Who does the remediation? Would, would a plumber do this? Would the building maintenance <coughs> staff do this? Usually, and not, not to use this as, as, a, as a sales tool, but somebody like a Ron or a Craig or, or somebody, a company um, like ourselves that would have the ability to come in and not only provide the service, because the service itself is pretty straightforward. But the biggest thing that you've got to be aware of is you've got to make sure that you're dealing with a company that is capable of following the protocols and the best practices that are established. And the thing is, is when you're dealing, depending on, on as Ron pointed out too, when you're dealing with the type of customer that you're dealing with, you've got to make sure that, that it's followed properly just because of the fact that you know, the disease, if not properly identified and treated, can be deadly. Now, Craig, we have uh, numerous other questions we wanted to ask you, but we're running a little short on time. Why don't we just allow you to quickly give our listeners, I guess, what, what you think would be the most important thing or the one thing that you'd like to add before we go? Okay. Well, one thing that we didn't touch upon was um, air duct cleaning for the uh, inside of homes. There's been a lot of controversy over whether air duct cleaning is good or bad to do inside a house because, you know, that's part of the system in the crawl space here as well. Not only are we conditioning the crawl space, but the air conditioning system runs through the crawl space. And you want to keep that system clean uh, for the health of the house as well. And what we have found, unfortunately, is that a lot of the companies that do air duct cleaning aren't licensed or certified or haven't had any training. And I think a good rule, when you, if you're going to hire an air duct cleaner as part of a mold remediation project, or just to have your ducts cleaned, if you don't have access to every part of the air duct system, the main plenums, the secondary duct, where everything, you shouldn't try to clean it because if you disturb the mold or dirt or dust that's inside the ductwork without being able to get it all out, you stand a very good chance of making the problem worse rather than better. And the other problem is that, especially down here, most of the air duct systems are made out of duct board 
or internally lined. And one of the big mistakes a lot of companies make when trying to do an air duct cleaning is after the cleaning is complete, they do not encapsulate the liner. And what we've seen is a lot of people actually get sick, uh, eye lacerations, skin rashes, and that type of stuff by once the cleaning is done and they turn the system back on, the fiberglass particles start blowing out into the house and they land on your bed, your pillows, or your furniture and causes its own health problems. So as far as a wrap-up on indoor air quality, you know, just to be careful about air duct cleaning as part of mold remediation. That, um, you know, some houses are designed where you don't have access to all of the ductwork and it's not possible to physically remove everything. And they just need to be very careful of that when they're having that type of work done. All right. Look thank at the house system. All right. Yeah, you got to look at it as the whole system. As the whole system. Thing. Craig, thank you. And let's go to uh, Willie. Willie Murphy, anything you'd like to add? We just had uh, Willie's running late for his own forensic investigation out there. He <laughs> just walked out the door. All right. Let me get back to Scott because I know there were a lot of things, Scott, that we wanted to get into with you, and maybe we can bring you back um, as a, on a future show. But before we go, any, what's the most important thing we didn't touch on today? Um, I think the most important thing is, and this is something that, that if people are interested, um, they can go with uh, Ron and Craig. There, as I said, there is the technology out there from being able to identify Legionella serogroup 1 within as little as 25 minutes. Uh, this is technology that's been being worked on for the last few years, and um, it's a pretty unique instrument and test kit that if people want to get an idea from a risk standpoint on where they are, it'll let them know what the level of serogroup 1 is so that they can go ahead and take immediate action if necessary. And the thing that we'd like to bring out about it is it is a test kit. And because you're dealing with Legionella, you need to take the proper precautions and the proper protocol in order to do it. But what's unique about it is instead of having to wait the two weeks, so if you were to take a sample, you can, let's just say for, you know, for sake of argument, that you were already had a level of serogroup 1, wouldn't you like to know in 25 minutes that you had it rather than wait two weeks? That gives you two weeks that you can take remediation action and get you back to the proper levels. And is this new test as, um, I don't know what the right word is, as uh, accurate as the old old tests? Has it been approved it, now? It is. Yeah, the, the, the most accurate test, for an example, and, and I'm going to, um, I'll use my company if it's okay. We're sure. capable of, uh, Nalco's capable of actually doing what we would call the traditional water sample. Send it in two weeks, get a very nice report on serogroup one, two, and three. This one is as accurate, but again, you're only looking at serogroup one, and it just is to let you know that whatever system that you're testing, are, are, you, in a, are you in a situation that you, need to take, that you need to take action right away, or are the conditions okay that you can move on about your business? And, and are the costs comparable? They are. They, they they really are, and in fact, the, the way that the way that we call the test a fast path. That's the uh, technical term for the uh, kit. The way that it's structured, it comes in a pack of ten, 
And if you're looking at just from a test-to-test -test cost, it's actually lower than what you would call the, the more traditional type of test. What's the ballpark idea on the price on those? The price of a, of a kit is, is $850. And, and again, as I mentioned, um, with Ron and Craig here, they have a lot of the details and so forth. So you know, if your listeners, even yourself, would, would like some additional information or start to go through some things, um, I think you've kind of got Ron and Craig laid out on this. This is kind of like the, uh, the, the guests here with their information. By all means, you can put them in touch. Very in fact, good. Joe, if you'd like, I'll go ahead and give my email address to anybody that has any questions on, on the show, uh, any of the answers we presented today on the show, or any additional questions you may have uh, if you are interested in with your specific clients and Legionella testing. We can certainly help you with that information as well. You can email me directly at rlangley, that's R-L-A-N-G-L-E-Y, at the letter U, ucanrest.com. That's U-C-A-N-R-E-S-T.com. Great. You just send me a quick email, and if it's, a, if it's a question that needs to be answered by one of our structural engineers or one of our environmentalists or, or NALCO, I'll make sure that the appropriate person gets that message and we'll be glad to help you in any way we can. Excellent, Ron. Anything you wanted to add before we go? Uh, no, that's good. I, I think, uh, again, anybody that has questions on condition crawl space and stuff like that, certainly you can give me a call there, too. We do a lot of engineering work there. We do a lot of uh, engineering and, and cleaning work with NALCO on, on hospitals, school systems, automotive facilities, a lot of different commercial-type facilities. If you have some questions there, we certainly would be glad to help you in any way we can. Uh, we've learned over the years that certainly by sharing information, it makes all of us better at what we do. Thank Hell, you. I like you. <laughs> <laughs> we like all of you guys, and uh, I, I'd just like to say uh, from Radio Joe here, thank you so much to uh, Craig Spiceman, Scott Whip, Willie Murphy, and Ron Langley for joining us here on today's show. Uh, we had a few good men on the show here today, and we appreciate that. I don't know if CJ was ready for us or not on the few good men thing, but that's all right. Uh, this is uh, Radio Joe Hughes and my co-host Cliff Slotnick saying thank you all for joining us here on this week's edition of IAQ Radio. I also like to thank our growing group of uh, listeners. Actually, we had quite a few online here today. Got a few nice questions. I'm sorry I didn't get one of them answered. Um, fridges with filters that have to be replaced. We'll have to get you an email on that one, Darren. And uh, next week, we'll be back again at noon for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.